Good morning, y'all. <clears throat> now, you probably notice, yeah, we're going to have to go down a little bit, Jim. You probably notice that I'm not Brooks. Um, Brooks uh, told me I'd be preaching about, well, in all fairness, it was probably about a month ago, but I've been so busy lately, I didn't really get to look at the passage until maybe a week and a half ago. And I knew that it was somewhere around in the Last Supper. You guys know if you've been here that we've been going through John. So if you will, turn your Bibles to John 13. That's where we'll be this morning, John 13. And so I was thinking, oh man, we're going to be somewhere in the middle of the Last Supper. Um, maybe, you know, I was really looking forward to one of these last minute, really powerful messages to the disciples from Jesus. You know, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. Uh, that kind of thing. Maybe when he promises to leave us the Holy Spirit, they will not leave us alone uh, or leave us as orphans, or maybe even where he's washing the disciples' feet in this amazing act of, you know, humility and servanthood. Well, as it turns out, uh, Brooks is at Disney World this morning, and he left me with Judas. <clears throat> so thanks, man. I appreciate that. I told him that last Sunday. Uh, I told him I was going to call him out. The very least he could have done was give me Barabbas or something, but that's okay. Um, I'm kidding, but uh, I can honestly say, no matter how busy you get, when you go into the Word, it's obvious that God is there. But what He wants to tell you, it's incredible. And I'm completely blown away by a passage about one of the worst, um, actually, I mean, the, most, the, the worst, probably, unarguably, the worst betrayer in all of history, could teach me so much about my God. Um, it blew me away, and I'm, I'm incredibly excited to bring this word to y'all this morning. We have so much to be thankful for, church. As far back as John 6, as I said, we've been going through John for a long time now, and as far back as John 6, uh, Jesus and John, recording the, the, the works of Jesus in his writings, have alluded to something being off among the 12 disciples. Something's not quite right. There is someone amongst us who isn't quite right. And it's never really been fleshed out or talked about other than, you know, offhandedly mentioned. And I've always thought it was really weird. So finally this morning we get to, well, what he's talking about. We finally reach Judas the betrayer. Um, and our passage is actually going to start in verse 18 this morning. But if you would permit me to back all the way up to verse 1 and read, uh, read through this thing, I would actually like to do that because it will give us a little bit more context and help us make more sense of what's going on. So if you guys will read with me. John 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, while I am doing or what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. 
And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. As you can see, he's already made two different references leading up to this. In verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, ought, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should also, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, and nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And now where we start this morning in verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, the one who sent me. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table, or at the table near Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered him, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said these things to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go and buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. If you guys would, let's pray this morning before we dive into the Word. Father, protect your Word this morning. Protect it from me, and from the outside world, and from sin. Present your Word this morning to us, the church, in all of your glory, Father. I pray that we hear what you need us to hear this morning and that we do and we act upon it, Lord. Don't, do not let us just talk about your glory and think about your glory. Father, help us to praise you in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words, in every, every part of our being this morning. We thank you for everything that you have given to us. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. So you know a name that you'll never see on a top 100 baby names list? It'd be Judas. If you don't know, Kelly and I are um, pregnant with our third child, and we're expecting uh, actually to find out um, exactly what it is pretty soon. And when you look up baby names, I never seem to find Judas, which is kind of sad because I actually looked the name Judas up. Judas is the, what they said, the Hellenistic, in other words, the Greek version of the name Judah, the Hebrew name Judah, which means to praise. What a beautiful name. What a beautiful meaning to a name. And when I saw that, man, it's like, it's such a cool name, and it is so wasted 
because of this man, because of his actions. But I hope that later on you'll see, just as I did, uh, did when I read through this, that absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing, especially Judas, will stop God from receiving his due praise and honor and glory. Absolutely nothing. So what are we seeing here in John 13? What can we learn about our God from Judas the betrayer? Um, I got to admit something. I know that we are a Baptist church, and so by law, we are supposed to have our three bullet points each week. But instead, I'm going to have four questions in place of our expected three points. And so here they are. First question, how on earth did Judas, Judas think he could keep this from Jesus? Second question, why Judas? Why would Jesus choose him knowing what he was going to do? Third question, why would he tell the disciples? Why would he go out of his way to tell them? So why is he telling them about this betrayal to the come, uh, that is to come? And fourth question, if he knows and he tells them, why would he allow him to do it? Why on earth would Jesus and God allow Judas to do this? And as a bonus question, why is there a disciple leaning against the back of Jesus while he's trying to eat and talk? Which really bothered me for a long time until I looked it up. So I'm going to go ahead and address that question first so we can get it out of the way. Um, have you seen the, the, the Last Supper painting by Leonardo da Vinci? I'm sure you have. It's incredibly famous. In that painting, all of the disciples with Jesus in the center are nicely framed and on one side of the table, strangely, and all facing the camera, so to speak. Um, so that's not actually what was happening. When I did some research, I was trying to figure out why people were leaning up against each other and reclining. Um, it was strange. It sounded kind of exciting. I might try that when I eat. But they would actually sit at what would have been a U-shaped table, and it would not have been a table in our sense of the word. There would not have been chairs. It would have been incredibly low to the ground. The disciples and Jesus would have been, I guess the best way to say it is sprawled out, reclining, to use the language of the Bible. They would have been reclining with their feet backwards, their head towards the table, propped up on their left elbow and eating with their right hand. Very strange way to eat relative to us, but that's how it would have been done. So hopefully that makes a little more sense why people were reclining and leaning back on other things. But uh, now that we got that cleared away, and that was clearly the most important part, let's get into uh, the rest of this. My first big question, how did Judas think that he could keep this from Jesus? This made no sense to me. And so the scene here is that they're all reclining and eating at this table, and they're listening to Jesus talk about the humility that he needs them to learn after he has washed their feet. And so I'm sure they were in a strange position, the disciples, at this point. And so look at verse 18 again. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Imagine the looks of the disciples. Jesus has been mentioning this throughout, and all of a sudden he comes out and says, I am not speaking of all of you. What do you mean you're not talking about all of us? Are we not all your disciples? Matthew 26 actually says, And they were very sorrowful and began to say uh, to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it me? Will I betray you, Father? Um, I mentioned the painting by da Vinci of the Last Supper. That scene in the painting is supposed to depict all of the disciples reacting to Jesus, telling them that one of you will betray me. So none of them really knew, but... Judas did, and so did Jesus. We learn in Matthew that he had already, Judas, had already approached the chief priests, seeking a deal 
In Matthew 26, 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And Jesus knew what Judas had planned for him. And if you think about it, that's why he actually hid the location of the Passover, the Last Supper, from all of the disciples. Back in Matthew again, you read this. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? So nobody knew. And Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat, uh, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Jesus was hiding it because he knew that Judas was seeking an opportunity, as we saw the scriptures say. Um, so he knew what Judas was about. He knew exactly who he was and what was going on and what he was going to do. And that makes me wonder, why on earth did Judas think he could ever hide this from Jesus? But Jesus knew, right? Verse 18, he said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Even more evidence to back that up. I mentioned John 6 earlier. You don't have to turn back up. It should be on the screens. But back in John 6, after Jesus has, um, has fed the masses and he's, tell, he's, he's sat down with the Jews and said, I am the bread of life. And there was a lot of angry people who were upset about this. And Jesus is now talking to the 12 disciples. And so Jesus said to the 12 in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so Jesus answered them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So I've been in, in, a, in a church, at least, for almost my whole entire life. And every time I hear about Judas, I really am baffled. He has watched Jesus call people out, things that would be impossible to know were they not God. He has seen Jesus repeatedly confront the wickedness and the sin in the hearts of men, things that they thought were hidden, repeatedly, time and time again. How was Judas even here at this point? How had he managed to keep this wickedness in his heart for so long? How did he get in this deep, so to speak, all the while never actually believing in Jesus, to the point that he was willing to betray him for 30 lousy pieces of silver. How could you literally walk with God and not believe? That breaks my heart, but I have to remind myself that it's easier for me now. I know what happened. I know what happened a few days from, from this scene in John. But still, how do you do that? John MacArthur calls Judas the biggest wasted opportunity in history. To have walked with our God, to have broken bread with him, to have spoken with him, but all the while to never truly believe. And all the while, our God knew. Jesus, our God, is all-knowing and omniscient. And there is not a single thing that you can do or say or think that he does not already know about. And you learn about this from the time that you're this tall, 
but it still matters. It's still important. He tells Jeremiah, just, just listen to this slew of evidence that is just a small portion. He tells Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Psalm 147 says this, he, he determined the number of the stars and caused them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. As a science teacher, that one really appeals to me. There's something about space and the stars and just the vast realms and the billions of galaxies. And it clearly says, he numbers them and calls them each by name. In Hebrews 4, we read, nothing in all of creation is hidden from the God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Luke 12, indeed the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And one of my all-time verses in Romans chapter 11, when Paul is writing about God's grace and his mercy, and it just goes on and on to the point that it leads Paul to just break down and cry out in praise and worship of his king. And he just sings out, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. This says a lot. It says that to believe in God, to believe in our God, is to believe in a, cre a creator who not only knows you and who not only understands you, but he does it down to your every atom your very hair. He created you and he placed you on this earth for his glory and that means that he did the exact same thing for Judas. And it's there where we find the answer to our second question. Why Judas? Why let him into the fold? Why choose him to be one of the twelve knowing exactly what he would do? Verse 18 again. But the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus here, I looked it up, is quoting Psalm 41, verse 9. And at this moment, David, who's written this psalm, is writing in a time of, well, the only thing I could think would be peril, absolute terror of his, uh, a, a terrible moment of his life. He's living in fear. All of his enemies are conspiring against him, and they're closing in around him, so to speak. And he writes this in Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Sounds familiar. And Jesus says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And that is just one of many endless scriptures that Jesus quotes throughout John and all the other gospels. Hearkening back to times throughout the Bible where the scripture is clearly pointed to a coming Messiah, that scripture must be fulfilled. Here are just a few. The scriptures, for one, Example, prophesy that the evil men will reject Jesus when he comes. In Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, he's quoting Psalm 118 here, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Another one, the scriptures also prophesy that Jesus must be hated, which is a terrible thing to watch. But in John 15, Jesus quoted Psalm 35 and said, The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. We've seen that all throughout John. Pure hatred from everyone almost towards Jesus. The scriptures also prophesy or foretell that the disciples would abandon Jesus. This breaks my heart. In Matthew 26, Jesus is quoting Zechariah 13, and he says, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, 
I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The scriptures also say that Jesus will be pierced, but none of his bones were broken. This is actually borderline scary how accurate this is. In Zechariah 12, we see one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. That sounds familiar, right? For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him to whom they have pierced. You should really go back and read that passage when you have some time. It lines up verbatim with the process of the crucifixion. And it happened, I'm not sure how many years, but at least a thousand before it ever happened to Jesus. It's almost scary down to the soldiers casting lots for the garments. And finally, the scriptures prophesy that where we are this morning, Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Hear this out. Also in Zechariah 11, verse 12 through 13. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Remember, this is back in the Old Testament. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. It's crazy, right? Scary familiar. So why Judas? To fulfill the scriptures and to bring God's plan into motion. To fulfill everything that he has been promising throughout our entire journey in the book of John and throughout all the other gospels and throughout all of the history of scripture. It's to fulfill his scriptures. Church, he chose Judas so that he, the triune God, who has existed since before time began, something I cannot wrap my mind around, could fulfill his promises, even though we have certainly not earned them or deserved them. Joshua 21, it says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. They all shall come to pass. And that in and of itself is incredibly encouraging to me as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, as a person who sins and who lives every day getting up early, going to work, seeing people's hatred towards Jesus, and even worse, realizing later my own hatred towards Jesus through my own sins, watching this world through the news and through all these various places, that is incredibly encouraging to me. It is encouraging that my God knows all and that he is in control of this ship. No one else. Absolutely nothing. What a blessing it is to serve a God who knows all things, but who chose to humble himself to the point of death on a cross just for you and just for me. If only Judas had been able to see what was right in front of him. Sadly for him, it was not a part of God's plan. And so I guess I should apologize. We really haven't even gotten out of the first verse. And without even making it out of verse 18, we have already seen so much about our God. And it really is a showstopper. Our king, our creator, he is all-knowing, and he is in control. So what then did he do, Jesus, in this case, with this knowledge? Look back to verse 19. Verse 19, he says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, 
And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is all-knowing, and here he's choosing to share this knowledge with his disciples concerning Judas's betrayal. <clears throat> so, uh, and that is our third question. Why would he tell them? Why would he choose to share this information with, G- with the disciples? There is an overwhelmingly powerful statement that we just read by when we were reading those scriptures, that verse, verse 19, that I want to take a look at because it kind of gets lost in translation and it needs to have some context. Look back at verse 19. Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now that he there, the word he, is supplied for the English language. That would have been to make, to make our language make a little more sense. But the original Greek would have simply read, I am. And that is a declaration, a famous declaration in the Bible, one that any Jewish person would have known at this time. That is a declaration of deity. And it comes from Exodus 3, when Moses is asking God, what should I tell the people of Israel to call you by, God? And so God tells Moses, by way of the burning bush, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so when Jesus tells the disciples in verse 19, so that you may believe that I am, that I am he, you can see the extra weight that that would have had to them. <clears throat> but there's so much more to this verse. And if you just read it one time and you just focus on that, I promise you it gets so much better. I want you to see that not only is our God all-knowing and not only is he um, in control, like we saw in verse 18, but our God is all-loving in every sense of that word. Now, it has not happened yet as of this point in John as we progress through, but you know what's about to happen to the 12 disciples, right? Obviously, Judas, he's going to betray Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. Fun fact, that's not so fun. (laughs) Judas won't live out the rest of this night. There's one of the 12 disciples. You know what Peter does? Before we even get out of the end of this chapter, in fact, probably next week, we'll see that Peter will deny Jesus three times. Uh, That's what Jesus will tell him, that he will deny him three times before, I think the words he uses are, the rooster even crows. And we know that Thomas, after the crucifixion, Thomas doubted. I mean, he's famous for that, that Jesus had returned. The disciples, you guys, are fragile. They are weak. Their faith is frail. And Jesus knew that. And he knew that it would get worse. He knew the darkness that was coming. These three days of, man, I can't even imagine. So their faith is weak. And and it's not just then. Y'all, we have seen throughout John, time and time again, the disciples are almost clueless. It's almost embarrassing to read to watch them like little children misunderstand God and miss what he's trying to tell them and have weak faith time and time again. And so Jesus knows. And so what he's telling them here, by giving them a glimpse at what is going to happen, by saying uh, in verse 19, where does he say? I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He is giving them strength. What love to look out for them like this. Something to hold on to so that when they're in the heat of it all, 
when everything is falling apart and when it must have felt so dark and scary and hopeless and lost that they would not forget who he is. Jesus says, do, you, do not forget, I am. I am. He did not want them to fall apart when all of this is about to go down, courtesy of Judas. Out of love, in the midst of it all, facing his betrayal, that he knew would ultimately lead him to a most painful death. Jesus, again, demonstrates his love by strengthening the disciples' faith. He reassures them, do not forget me in this storm because I am so much bigger than it will ever be. I am extremely encouraged that my God knows all things, that my God is in control of all things, and that my God is bigger than anything that can come against him. He is bigger than the darkness, than the storm, than anything that I can be facing. And that is enough. That is enough right there. But there is so much more. The amazing thing about following God is that there is always more. Every single day as a Christian can lead you to a better understanding of God. And every single day you will find more. You will find truths that you once knew that you've forgotten. You'll find truths that you know that you're not following. And you'll find truths that you've never seen before. What an amazing God we serve. So Jesus tells the disciples what is, happening to, uh, what is happening to him and in the future out of love for them. And that, by the way, is the same exact love that he grants us. And I would just like to point this out. When he gives us his spirit, he promises it in a few uh, chapters from now in John, and he delivers upon it later. And he also gives us his truth, his word, his promises, everything we would ever need. And so what else is there? But that brings me to our last question. One that, in my opinion, all the other questions have led up to. Why would he allow Judas to do this? Why would God allow this to happen? And although I, I feel like, especially if you've been in church for any period of time, the answer may be somewhat obvious. It is beautiful nonetheless. Pick up in verse 21 of chapter 13. The heading says, one of you will betray me. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, uh, if I could in interrupt here, he's talking about John, which is kind of funny because John is writing this and he throws in that little note about, that's me, the one who he loved whatever, I just thought it was kind of funny, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And so verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, John, leaned back against Jesus, saying to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this, uh, this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And we all know what happens from there. 
Something I didn't mention earlier about the, the painting, Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. Although we don't actually know the complete order, in other words, uh, who was sitting exactly where at the table, we do know a few. We know that Peter was sitting on the very end. And if you look at the painting of the, of the Last Supper by Da Vinci, Jesus is in the middle, obviously, but John is to his right. And James and Thomas in the painting are to the left. But we actually know that wasn't right. John was to the right, but James and Thomas were not to his left. You know who was? It was Judas. Judas was immediately to the left of Jesus. Now, in our culture, this really means absolutely nothing. And so I had to do a little bit of digging to understand what's going on here. Turns out it's actually not even just culturally significant. It is very culturally significant. We know that those seated to the right, John in this case, are generally favored or looked on in high esteem or regard by the master. But the left also has significance. It is a position of honor, like a guest of honor. This is really weird when you start to think about it. On top of this, there's more. The gesture that Jesus is talking about here by dipping the morsel by the master and passed on, the first person he would have given it to was the guest of honor. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And so Judas, the thief, by the way, we know that. John called him a thief earlier in chapter 12 because he'd been stealing from the money bag. Judas, the thief, who has lied and who has conned his way into this position, at least in his eyes, of being the favored guest among the disciples, he must have thought, man, I'm right where I want to be. I got this all working out. Judas must have thought that he was exactly where he wanted to be. But he was also right where Jesus wanted him to be. And that is the part of this story that, although sad, and this may sound weird, it brings my heart to a joy that is unspeakable. <laughs> and to quote the song, full of glory. This may sound weird, but just listen. Why would God allow his only son to be betrayed? Why would he allow this to happen? To be sold off with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. To allow Satan to freely walk into Judas right in front of him, no less. Knowing exactly what he would do. Here's the answer. Because there is nothing. And there is no one that will interfere with the plans of God. If I was a little more of an animated person, I would scream and shout those words. There is absolutely nothing. Cue the face turning red and the stomping in it all. Because it means so much to hear that. Why would God allow this to happen? And that is just the glimpse. The glimp, the, a glimpse of the iceberg underneath the sea that, that nothing and no one can interfere with his plan. That tells you something. That tells you that the cross, although it was a tragedy at first, was the ultimate victory for God and ultimately for us, his people. John Piper says, God foresaw and did not prevent, so therefore included in his plan that his son would be rejected, hated, abandoned. Remember all these scriptures that we prophesied to, that the Bible had prophesied to, that Jesus alluded to earlier. De uh, betrayed, denied, condemned, spit upon, flogged, and mocked, and pierced, and killed. That means that God not only knew it was going to happen, he included it in his plan. These things didn't just work out. They were foretold in God's word. God knew that they would happen. And he could have planned to stop them, but he didn't. And that means that they happened according to his sovereign will. In Isaiah 53, we see this. Yet, 
It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. If you're tuning me out so far this morning, I encourage you to listen to this last part, to the answer to our last question. We just read in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so if you're still not understanding why, the reason this matters, the reason it is such a big deal that God allowed this to happen and no one else, just God, is because it is to God that we have sinned. It is to God that we lie and that we mock and that we betray, if we're honest. It is to God whom we sin when we worship ourselves, if we're honest. By seeking our own glory instead of his, when it's him, when it's he that is the one who put us here. It is to God that we have sinned, and so it's to God that we are to be judged and to be held accountable for that sin. And I, I can't speak for you, but I know that I have absolutely nothing to offer him in place of all of the sin that I bring to the table. I have nothing that can replace all of that in his eyes. The only thing, please listen, in all of creation that can redeem us in the eyes of God is God himself. And that is why it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that is why I say that when Judas was right where Jesus wanted him to be, we mean it. And it brings me to overwhelming joy to know that. That he would go through all of this for me. That he would sit there and watch all of that play out, knowing what was going to happen. That he would spend the next few days of his life that we will see throughout John as we continue in this series. Being hated and abandoned and betrayed and flogged and ultimately crucified on a cross. That he would do that for me. That he would replace my sin and exchange my betrayal and my mocking for a place in his kingdom. Isaiah 53, again says, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It is by his wounds that we are healed. If you go to church, you hear these things. But I am begging you this morning to truly hear these things. To truly understand what's happening here. Words can only take us so far. But when I read that it is by his wounds that I am healed, it wrecks me. Because I know who I am. It took me a while to realize it. And I think that's why I had such a weak faith to begin with early on in my life. I think my faith was much more works-based. What can I do to get to God? Heaven sounded really cool as an eight-year-old kid. What do I need to do? So I know who I am. And when I finally understood, okay, I get it, I'm not murdering people maybe, but God created me for his glory. And when I go against that, it is sin. And there is no way around that. And when I finally understood that, and then I turn around and read something like, it is by his wounds that I am healed, and then I try to picture my God, my king, hanging on that cross for me, sitting there watching Judas immediately to his left, smile with pride at the position that he had earned his way into, knowing what was going to happen, it breaks me, church. I think it was last week. I can't exactly remember, but I know recently we've sung the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and it's one of my all-time favorites. There is a line in that song that says, ashamed, 
I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. And that hurts. God allowed all of this to happen for you. Church, what a Savior we have in Jesus. We've been writing songs about it forever, singing praises about it forever, and it is God's will that it will continue forever. We are truly, truly loved with a love that surpasses all understanding. It is beyond me to even remotely get why he did this for me. What kind of love would just wipe away all of our wrongs? Just, they're gone, as white as snow. What kind of king would do that for his people? I think what I want, no, I think what I needed to understand and what I would encourage you to understand also is that we can't just keep forgetting this. We can't just show up to this place for a routine or for a social calling uh, or for our kids or our reputations. We can't, we can't just keep pushing this good news away the, the minute we reach the edge of the parking lot or the line at the KFC. We cannot put ourselves in front of this kind of love, God, church, in front of worshiping a king like this with a love like this. What a king and what a savior we have in Jesus. If you guys would bow your heads, we'll pray. My God, to think about everything that you went through for me on my behalf to wipe away my sins. I am in awe of you, Father. I am humbled by why you even allow me to be here. I am blown away by your love. Father, I pray that you help me to understand more about it. I pray that you let it sink deeper into me. I pray that you allow your love to dictate my life. Father, don't let me forget who you are. You tell us time and time again, I am. God, don't let me forget that. Thank you so much for the encouragement this morning that when I'm in the storm, when I'm in the heat of the battle, when I'm busy beyond belief, stressed out, Sick, broke, full of fear and doubt that you are there and that you are in control and that you love me beyond all understanding. Father, what a king you are. And we praise your name this morning for it.